passage we're looking at is talking about drawing unto to the Lord in cohesion and unity as this community of faith that's being built into a spiritual house. We've got uniformity, especially on this side. We've got people on this edge, this edge. You guys are all scattered about, but I'm going to give about 10 seconds. And for those of you who feel led and don't want to be singled out, once you get up, just move forward so that I feel like I'm speaking to a group instead of looking out at a bunch of uh, individuals. That's good. I thought you were coming up so you could point out to me who's not moving. <laughs> okay, three people moved. Graham, be a leader. Bring your whole row and show people how you guys can move up about eight or nine rows. No, that's only one row. Okay. I try, I, Paul, I only got him to go up like one row and only about six people, so we definitely have to work on this. If you're visiting here, if you're new here or recent here, you may be wondering, what is all this talk about the one-year Bible and now the chronological Bible? Uh, you know, Arnie, who's now in 1 Corinthians, uh, doing in-depth studies, and you may feel, wow, I'm, I feel guilty and you don't fit in. Comfort yourself in knowing, I totally blew the one-year Bible last year, and this year I'm starting off small. I'm doing the version app on my phone, verse a day, okay? So if you can fit the verse of the day or if you can advance all the way to the year in a Bible, then you've got a place here. Uh, anyways, I'm, I'm just jesting. I want to be like Daryl and those who can do the one-year Bible uh, and do it consistently and faithfully. Let's pray as we move into our text this morning. I don't know about you, uh, I found this morning very distracting. Uh, I went out all excited that we were going to all go in my pickup truck to church today and discovered that Jack didn't quite shut the door uh, on the truck yesterday. It's fully shut, and so it didn't want to start. And so it just totally threw my day off. I don't understand why people think cold and snow is beautiful. And so I need, I need prayer, and I need focus if nobody else does. <laughs> Lord, we, thank, we do thank you for this day, and we, we thank you that we can jest and, 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 and enjoy humor. Uh, Lord, but I, I do pray that you would help us to remove all the distractions that are here because of the, uh, the weather and, and because of a whole bunch of other things that can be thrown into our life that cause us to lose sight and to lose focus of you and your purposes and what you would want to say to us. And so, Lord, I pray that through your Spirit, you will focus our mind and our attention, give us ears that are willing to hear and a heart that's willing to change. And, uh, Lord, we, we pray against Satan and the enemy and anything that he would try to throw in the way of hearing from you. And so, Lord, in your power, we eagerly uh, and with great expectancy wait to hear what you would have to say. And so I pray that you would use me in that way, that I would just be a vessel, Lord, that we would hear uh, from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And there's something that I used to say more often. Uh, I still say it once in a while, and now it's really just Jack. I see uh, some mornings going off to the bus. But I would often say to the kids this statement that the more I think about it, I realize how profound the statement really was. But I would say to them as they walked out the door, remember who you are, what you are, and why you are. And first and foremost, they're Mackie. 
And I realize that they are going into a school setting where there's pressures and there's temptations. And if they forget that they are representing our family and they had sisters or a brother that have gone on before, that they could make decisions or act in ways that aren't in keeping with the fact that they're a Mackie. Most importantly, they're a child of God. And so I ask that they remember who they are, what they are, and why they are, so they will act in keeping with the fact that they're a child of God. And I thought, you know, when we lose sight of our identity, when we forget who we are, that can fit into any context. That doesn't just have to be a church sermon context. When we lose sight of who we are, we forget our identity, temptation and compromise are much harder to resist. Our perspective can so easily get off track. We can find ourselves acting and making choices that are inconsistent with who we are. And I really, that takes place in a sports setting. So for instance, in hockey, if the goalie forgot that they were the goalie, their job is to keep the puck out of the net, and they decided that every time the puck came to them, they were going to race up the ice and try to score. As exciting as that might be for a fan, it more, I probably all, almost always is going to turn out to be disastrous. The same would be for someone who's on staff, let's say at a carnival. Could you imagine the person whose job, their identity within the carnival is to man a ride but they forgot that that was who they were, and they decided, hey, I'm going to jump on this ride myself. And so no one else could get on the ride because the operator was going round and round and round on the roller coaster. Or a more serious note, in marriage. If we forget the fact that we are committed to our spouse, that we have dedicated ourselves to our spouse and to our spouse alone, and we go off to work, we go off on the road, we can find ourselves making decisions and choices that aren't in keeping with who we are. But it is definitely, definitely a reality in the Christian life. When we lose sight of our identity as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God, when we find ourselves believing things that aren't quite true, it will directly have an impact on the way that we live our life. And that's what was happening to the people that Peter was writing to. Finding themselves scattered because of persecution. Having themselves stripped of comforts and conveniences. Finding themselves in situations of of suffering, uh, facing trials and difficulties. They were definitely a people who forgot, in many cases, who they were and why they were. Many of them had concluded that there was little hope for them. They had forgotten the fact that because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they were God's beloved children. And instead, some of them had drawn that conclusion that there was no hope. And so how best could they make life better than the disastrous life that they were experiencing amongst people who didn't believe what they believed and were giving them a very hard time because of what they believed in? And so as we've seen over the weeks in 1 Peter, that some of them thought it might be a good idea to compromise their faith. 
Some thought it would be a good idea to conform a little bit closer to the society around them. So they wouldn't stick out so much like a sore thumb. And some people came to a conclusion that the best thing would be to give up their faith totally. And, you know, as we, in our 2019 context, think of that conclusion, maybe it sounds really drastic. Hard to believe that someone would just give up their faith because they find themselves in a tough situation. But I want to suggest that the reality that Peter's readers faced back in their day is no different than the reality that we face in our day. If we lose focus on what our true identity is, and if we start believing things that aren't true about who we are and what the church is, you'll have a direct impact on the way that we live our life. And so if your view of God is that he is some far away, distant deity that's far too busy to be concerned with someone like me, that's going to have an impact on how you live your life. It's going to have a direct relationship to what you communicate about God to others. If your view of God is that he is like an angry schoolmaster, that he is up in heaven with his arms crossed and his brow furled at every mistake that we make, shaking his head, ready to pronounce when we really screw up. If that's our view on God, it is going to have a direct impact on the way that we live our life. And it's going to have a direct impact on what we communicate to others about God. And likewise about the church. And I know there's people here, a bunch of you, and you have been involved in various levels of leadership within the church. Many of you have grown up in Peterborough, and you know what it's like living in a city that's filled with all sorts of different options for churches. Some of you have actually lived through conflict within your local community of faith, or you've watched other churches break apart because of conflict. And as we've witnessed this, as we've experienced it, we can come to the conclusion that church is ineffective. It moves slow. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much division. There's so much frustration. And if this is our view of the church, it's going to have a direct impact on how we function within the church. The way we view the importance of the church. The uh, level uh, of, how am I trying to say this? How exalted our view of the church actually is. And so when, when we forget who we really are, and we start believing perspectives and views that are t- twisted or totally untrue, it, it affects the way that we live our life. And Peter knows this. And that's why he writes this letter that we've been looking at for many weeks. And he writes in the first 10, chapter, first 10 verses about how great a salvation it is that we have. And then he continues from that to show the kind of life that we need to be living because of that great salvation that we have. And my hope is that as we've spent so much time in First Peter, that you found it helpful uh, and encouraging as Peter has reminded us how great this salvation is.
And as you have strived to live out your faith in a society that's not so friendly towards that faith, that you find it helpful and encouraging to listen to his instruction. And we've seen that instruction. That because of this great salvation that we have, we set our hope on Jesus and his return. That, that we choose to be holy, to live like God would want us to live to reflect His character in the things that we say and that we do, that we fear God, that we have a total and absolute awe of this awesome God and that we're reverent and we don't want to disappoint Him. We, We want to please Him. And that we love each other deeply. In brotherly love, yes, but but in the kind of love that God shows, agape love unconditional love. And then as we saw last week, that we, that we crave pure spiritual milk so that we don't fall into the sins and the behaviors that, that, that inhibit our ability to love each other deeply, but as well help us to grow spiritually and, and to mature and, and to thrive as individuals and as a community. And so this morning, I want to continue uh, in Peter's letter. And we're going to come uh, to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which is the final set of verses in the first section uh, of Peter's letter. And we're going to consider the instruction that Peter has for us uh, in these verses. So why don't you turn and let's read it and uh, consider the things that Peter has to say to us. So if you've got your pew Bible, it's page 981. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I will begin at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And at first reading, this is is a really packed passage. Uh, it, It seems to go all over the place, uh, as I read it uh, and, and studied it, I was reminded of a guy that I used to work for. Uh, and uh, I learned quite quickly. In fact, in, I had two job interviews before I got hired. And each job interview was three hours. Uh, so out of the six hours of job interviews, uh, if you actually took away all the fluff and all the stories and all the, the little anecdotes uh, that he shared during these interviews, the interview was probably about 20 minutes long. And I learned about this guy after I got hired is his favorite comment to add to the end of a sentence or to the end of a story was, I digress. And I learned that if you were going to go and ask him a question or you wanted to find out something or to explain something to him, you always knew that the conversation was going to be at least half an hour long. 
And you better get what you want in the first three minutes because he will take something and he will go off into a story or he'll prove something that was said and it would just be a long, long conversation. Peter digresses a few times uh, in these verses. It's very helpful information and and I'm going to tie it in to the main points that I think Peter is making. But I want to really simplify these verses and we're going to actually look at verses 4 through 10 this week and next week. And this week, what I want us to see is this. We are who we are because of who Jesus is. So we're really going to focus on who is Jesus because it is critical uh, and, and, and foundational for us to understand who Jesus is because we are who we are because of who Jesus is. And then next week, we're going to look at God has made us to be who we are so that we can tell the world who He is. And so I'm hoping that by breaking it out this way, uh, it makes it much easier to understand. So this week we're going to look at who uh, is Jesus. And as I said, it's very important for us to understand because who we are, especially if you have put your faith in Jesus, who you are is totally uh, rooted in who Jesus is is. And in these verses, Peter uses one key term to describe Jesus. He is the stone, which might sound really confusing. He says he is the stone upon which the church is built. And so as we look at these verses, you'll notice in verse 4, Peter says he is the living stone. In verse 6, he is the cornerstone. In verse 8, your translation may say cornerstone again. It may, see, uh, may say the chief cornerstone, uh, the head cornerstone, or it could be equally translated the capstone. And then in verse 8, Jesus is referred to as the stumbling stone. That those who reject and disobey stumble over this stone. But the text says more about Jesus the stone. Uh, It tells us that Jesus the stone is chosen by God and precious to him. It says that the stone is precious to those who believe. And those who put their trust in the living stone will not be put to shame. And then it says to those who don't believe in the stone that they will fall because they don't believe the message. And so there's that key word, the stone, and we might go, what in the world does the stone mean? Because where we sit at today, it might not be a real impressive term. A stone, it's kind of a dead object. Why would Peter use this of Jesus? Well, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into it, but what Peter is doing is using some Old Testament verses from Isaiah and applying them to Jesus. And if we were to take the, take, to take the time to go back to Isaiah 26, 27, 28, we would read about how God set before the leaders of Israel all these great promises. And they were symbolized by the stone laid in Zion. Now theologians aren't quite certain what the stone laid in Zion is actually referring to. 
It could be the city itself. It could be the promises that were inherent in the throne of David. Uh, It could be referring to God himself, who was the stone in Zion. But what Peter wants to show uh, in these verses is that this stone, these promises that God gave to the people, gave to the leaders of Israel, were rejected. Instead of accepting them and obeying them and embracing them, they chose to disobey. And they chose apathy and indulgence. And so, because of their rejection, they received judgment. And so Peter uses these verses and refers them to Jesus to show that God has come through with his promise. That God has provided a way of salvation. But just like the people in Isaiah's day, many people reject the living stone. God's promise fulfilled. God's salvation come. They reject Jesus. In the text, Peter pulls from three Old Testament passages. And if you look at your uh, Bible, you'll see the first one is Isaiah 28, verse 16, in verse 6. And there he refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the f- refers to the first stone laid uh, that forms the angles and the foundation for a structure. In verse 7, looking at Psalms 118, verse 22, Peter refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. I said that it could be equally translated the capstone. And the capstone is the last stone that's placed upon a building. And it's the climatic stone. And then Peter refers to Isaiah 8, verse 14. And that's in verse 8 here. And it says that Jesus is a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And so this cornerstone, the foundation of the church, Jesus, the capstone, the climatic stone, the pinnacle of God's plan of salvation, is also the stumbling stone. That those who don't believe, who choose to reject, who choose to disobey, stumble and fall over him. And and they, they reject him because they have no use for him. And so instead they choose to disobey and they choose to reject him. And why Peter puts all these verses together is to show something that's really important. And that's this. People's unbelief in who Jesus is doesn't throw God's purposes off track. The fact that the people of Jesus' day, by and large, opposed him, rejected him, persecuted him, crucified him, didn't change God's plan that Jesus would be the cornerstone of the church. And that he would be the capstone of our salvation. And there's a real dire warning in our text this morning. 
And that warning is this, the very stone that saves some people is the same stone that causes some to stumble. Three times in this text, Peter refers to Jesus as precious. But to those who don't believe, he's not precious. Probably a more accurate word would be, he's frustrating. Because the people of this world who choose to reject Jesus and not to see him for who he is, and so conclude that there's no use in putting Jesus into their life, He's frustrating because they keep bumping into him. They keep being confronted by Jesus. And they don't know what to do with him. We know what they should do with him. Embrace him. Give your life to him. Live for him. Receive the forgiveness he offers. But those in the world who don't see that and don't understand that, who've got the blinders on, they don't know what to do with him. And so we're told here that they stumble and that they fall. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He's the capstone of our salvation. He's the stumbling stone. But he's also the touchstone. A touchstone is something uh, which uh, you use to test and to judge another thing. And Jesus is the touchstone of all humanity. He's the dividing line of all humanity. Because the Bible makes it very clear that you either accept Jesus for who he is or you reject Jesus for who he is. There's no neutral ground. You know, as I was studying this and I was thinking of this, I couldn't help but think of, and I've shared this many times with you before, one of my favorite stories from Scripture, one of my favorite Christmas stories from Scripture, and we've referred to it uh, twice, I think, in the last number of weeks since Christmas, but we never really went in depth uh, into it. And so I asked Arnie if the praise team would read the story about Simeon. Uh, when Jesus was presented in the temple. Because I think what Simeon, or sorry, what Luke has to tell us in this account ties in so nicely with what Luke, oh my goodness, with what Peter uh, is telling us in his letter that we're considering. And it really ties in together. It helps us to understand who Jesus is, what makes him so special, and to see how he has become this dividing line for all humanity. So if you got your Bible, now I'm going to get you to flip over to Luke chapter 2. And I just want us to consider this story and to just to see some of the things that Luke has to tell us through the, through the mouth of Simeon about who Jesus is and what it is that makes him so special. So we've already read the text, so we're not going to read it again. But Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 25 So Luke tells us that there's two individuals who were waiting for something. In fact, they were waiting for somebody. Uh, They were waiting with great expectancy for the expected, promised Messiah. And uh, that was kind of like looking for a light at the end of a really dark tunnel. 
The world that Simeon and Anna, the two individuals, were living in was a dark world. There wasn't a whole lot of hope for people. The pagan religions had definitely failed. Uh, and even most Jews had lost the salt and the light that they were expected to be uh, to the world. Uh, and, and who could blame them? For 400 years, the prophets had been silent. But there were some faithful ones, and Simeon and Anna were two of them. And they waited with great expectation that the light was going to shine. And as Luke tells us this account, we find out that there was a light that was beginning to shine at the end of the tunnel. God was coming through uh, on his promises, and the promised Messiah uh, had been born. And so as we follow this account, we see that Jesus and Mary are going to the temple because it's the 40th day, and they're devout Jews, and they're going to follow the law of Moses. And so Mary needs to be purified 40 days after the birth of a son. Uh, Jesus, being the, the first child, needs to be consecrated to the Lord and dedicated to priestly service. So it's the 40th day, and they're going into the temple. Meanwhile, we have Simeon. And Luke doesn't really tell us a whole lot about Simeon. The Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about Simeon. People come to conclusions about who he is and what his role was. But the one thing we do know about Simeon is that he was made a promise. That he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And so, I don't know what his life looked like. I don't know if he was expecting the Messiah to be a baby. We just don't know that. We don't know if he hung around the temple every day or if he just kind of walked around town and looked at different people and said, God, is that the promised Messiah? Is that the promised Messiah? Is this the promised Messiah? Do I go over here to find the promised Messiah? Do I need to be in the temple to find the promise? We just don't know. But we do know is that on this one particular day, when Mary and Joseph were taking Jesus to the temple, the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to go to the temple. And I don't know if Simeon was really excited because he knew this was going to be the day or if it was just going to be another visit to the temple and he was going to leave frustrated because he still hadn't seen God's promised Messiah. But he goes to the temple and he starts asking the same question that I'm sure he kept asking, God, is that the one? God, is that the one? And in walked Mary and Joseph, who looked like the most unlikely candidates to have anything to do with the promised Messiah. And in their arms is a baby. And as I said, I don't know if that's what Simeon was expected, the prom, expecting the promised Messiah to be. But he's so used to asking that question. So he says, God, is this the one? And God said, yes, that's the one. And you can imagine the excitement, probably in the confusion, the Simeon has as he walks to, towards Mary and Joseph and he takes the baby Jesus in his hands and realizes that in his arms he was holding the promised Messiah. And so he breaks into praise. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon breaks into praise as he's holding this baby, and those around must have wondered, what in the world is going on? What is all the fuss? What's so special about that baby? Who is this Jesus? And who we are 
is determined by who Jesus is. We are what we are because of who Jesus is. And so what did Simeon know and understand and come to realize about this baby held in his arms? And we find from the text some really important information. First of all, in this baby, God's salvation has come. The word for salvation here is a very specific Greek word. Uh, It's not the word for savior. It's not the usual word for salvation that we would understand It is a word soterion, which means one fit to save. And so Simeon realizes that this baby in his arms, this promised Messiah, is the perfect fit to be our Savior. And what is it about Jesus that made him this perfect fit? Well, he was God. Only God could step into the human condition and offer a solution to our sin problem. He became a human, and only as a human could he become our substitute and take our sin upon himself. And he was perfect. Only someone who was sinless could take the sin of somebody else and satisfy God's righteous demand. So in this baby, Simeon realizes that God's salvation has come. He's the perfect fit for our salvation And then Simeon says that in this baby, Jesus, we find our assurance for peace. Simeon says, now that I've seen your salvation, God, I'm dismissed in peace. He didn't say that he was dismissed to peace because the world was not a very peaceful place. Herod was on the throne. There were some nasty things that were going to take place over the next 30-something years. Jesus was going to be arrested, and he was going to be persecuted. He was going to be put to death. We don't know what Simeon's home life was even like. We don't know what kind of situation he was going back to. But Simeon had great confidence that he could go in peace. Peace meaning A confidence that God was going to fulfill his promises. That God's word cannot fail. That God's salvation, regardless of the conflict, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of anything that might come before us, God's salvation will prevail. So Jesus is the perfect fit. He's our assurance of peace. And then Simeon says that he's the savior for all people. And I I love that line. I think I shared this a couple of weeks ago. In verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Like this is Mary and Joseph. They've had some real crazy things take place. What could cause them to marvel any more than what has already taken place? Like they're walking around with this baby and people are saying, oh, what a cute baby. What's his name? Oh, his name's Jesus because he's going to save people from their sin. Like what more can you be saying that's really uh, amazing? And yet they marvel at what Simeon has to say. And Simeon says that, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And all of a sudden, Mary and Joseph realize, wait a second, our son's not just going to save his people from, the, uh, from their sins, meaning the Jewish people. He's come to save all people from their sins. He's the Savior to Jews and Gentiles. What a baby. He is the Savior for all people at all times, no matter who they are, what they are, what race they're from, what economic uh, stature they have. He is to be the Savior for all people. 
And then Simeon says these things. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. See, there's a dark side to what was taking place. The ugliness of Christmas, as John MacArthur calls it. You know, one of the worst experiences I ever had in my life, uh, I have to word this correctly, Natalie's not here, so she would forgive me if she hears this, but was the moment that Natalie was born. One of the most horrible things that ever happened to me took place, and it wasn't her birth. I said, I've got to be careful how I word this. Lauren was born. It was a C-section. She was our first child. I had no idea what to expect. The nurses handed me Lauren and told me to go back to our private room uh, while they f- did the rest of what they had to do with, with Allison. And I walked you know, like this, like carrying this china doll and sat there hoping someone would please rescue me. I was a pro three year, or two years later when, when Natalie was born. I, was, I, I had no concern about what to do once they handed me Natalie. Like, it was going to be like carrying a football. Like, I was, re- I was ready for it. But just as I thought they were going to hand Natalie to me, they rushed her out of the room. And they never came back. And we had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what I was supposed to say to Allison. She's going, oh, where's the baby? Where's Natalie? And I had no idea, and I didn't know what to say. As you know, everything turned out Okay. What a horrible, horrible moment. How worse it might, must be to be, I had a friend and I've read of other people who know that their baby's going to be very sick and not live, and yet they choose to deliver that baby. And they hold that baby and they love on that baby and they take pictures of that baby, but they know right well that the baby's going to die. I can't imagine what that must be like. And yet that's what it was like for Simeon. He's holding the promised Messiah in his arms. He looks at Jesus and he sees glory and hope and promise and fulfillment. But at the same time, he sees opposition and violence and conflict and persecution. And I don't know how deep uh, his understanding of all the Old Testament was, but we know he he was a student of the Scriptures. And I'm sure Isaiah 53 was something that would have been on his mind. You were pierced for my transgressions. You were crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace is upon you. And by your wounds we are healed. And and Simeon knows that, that what's very special about this baby is this baby was born to die. That this baby was going to grow up, but he was going to face much opposition and ridicule and persecution, and he was going to be put to death. This baby was born to die. But there's something else that's special about the baby, and that's what we find from Anna, who's the other person in the story. It says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple. That's interesting. But to worship night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And, and Anna set things straight. That baby is born to die, but because he dies, there's going to be forgiveness of sin because the Savior is our Redeemer. 
He's going to pay the price for our sin to redeem us from the pit of, of the slave market of sin. And so this baby is special. He's fit to be our savior. He's our assurance of peace. He's the savior for all people. He's the one that was born to die, but that death will bring us forgiveness. And then the last thing that Simeon wants to know is that this baby is the dividing line for humanity. That wherever Jesus shines the light of his salvation, there are going to be those who accept him and embrace him, and there are going to be those who reject him and oppose him. That's exactly what Peter is telling us in these verses. That Jesus is the cornerstone, he is the capstone, and there are going to be people who embrace him, and they are going to choose him, and they are going to obey him, and they're never going to be put to shame. And we are who we are, ultimately, based on our response of who Jesus is. But there are those who are going to discover even though they reject him, though they conclude that Jesus is of no use, that he is just an object of ridicule. Paul tells us there is going to be a day when everyone is going to confess who Jesus actually is, but for some it's going to be too late. That God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and given him a name that is above all names. And at the feet of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. How have you responded to Jesus? The Bible makes it very clear there's only two responses. You accept him or you reject him. Who we are is determined ultimately by our response to who he is. And my prayer for you is that you have chosen him. And next week we're going to see that God has made us who we are so that we can tell the world about who he is. Arnie, come on up.